Welcome to Headlines of the Future, brought to you by Bayer. Fascinating clues to help solve some of the most pressing global challenges, from climate change to feeding a growing population to curing diseases, can be found through science and innovation. I'm Kate Hayes, and I'm your host of the podcast, Headlines of the Future, brought to you by Bayer. In this podcast, we get to hear from visionary scientists, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs who are exploring how the science of today may positively impact our lives in the future. In this episode, we're going to dive into the future of cardiovascular health, a topic that's near and dear to all of our hearts, and truly, no pun intended there, I think it would be hard to find someone who hasn't seen a loved one, whether it's a family member or friend, suffer from the effects of cardiovascular disease, which includes the conditions of the heart and blood vessels. And, you know, you might be affected personally. Cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death worldwide. And as the global population continues to age, Cardiovascular disease will continue to be a burden for patients, their caregivers, and healthcare systems. So that's a very good reason to explore what the future of cardiovascular health might look like and how science will improve and maybe even transform this field of medicine. As always, we've invited two visionary experts. Dr. Carolyn Lam is a senior consultant from the Department of Cardiology and director of Women's Heart Health at the National Heart Center Singapore, having pioneered the first women's heart clinic in Singapore. She also serves as a tenured full professor at the Duke National University of Singapore and is co-founder of Us2AI, an award-winning startup dedicated to the automation of the fight against heart disease. Carolyn, thank you for being here and welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. And Dr. Richard Nkulienka is Vice President, Head of Clinical Development and Operations for the Therapeutic Areas of Cardiology, Nephrology, and Pulmonology at Bayer. He has more than a decade of wide-ranging pharmaceutical industry experience in clinical development, pharmacovigilance, and medical affairs. And as an internal medicine specialist and epidemiologist, he looks back on a very diverse clinical practice experience with focus on acute medicine, including accident and emergency, cardiology, and intensive care. Wow, that is quite a resume. Richard, thank you so much for joining us as well. Thank you very much for having me. So to start out, can you tell us a little bit more, help us understand what does cardiovascular disease mean? What does that include? Kate, I think you gave a very nice description of cardiovascular disease in your introduction because it's already in the name. It's cardio, it's about the heart, and it's vascular, about the vessels. So cardiovascular disease is really any condition that adversely affects the function of the heart and the function of the vessels. Those things are, of course, very closely interlinked uh, because the function of the heart uh, is to pump blood through the vessels so that blood can reach the organs and supply oxygen to those organs for them to function properly. So anything that affects the function of the heart and the vessels will ultimately lead to dysfunction, so to malfunctions in the different organs. And this particularly becomes a problem when vital organs such as the brain, the kidney, or the heart itself 
uh, are affected. And this is what then manifests in, into conditions that we are all sadly familiar with, like heart attacks and strokes and kidney failure, which ultimately end up being the final manifestation of cardiovascular disease. And that's what we're really here to talk about. And that's what we really try to roll back. Personally, all of my grandparents experienced some sort of cardiovascular disease before they passed away. And I'm not sure if you have that same kind of family history and if that prompted you to get involved in medicine or pursue cardiology in your career, or if there was something else. Tell us a little bit more about how you got involved in medicine and specifically cardiology. My inspiration to go into medicine was indeed inspired by doctors uh, because I saw doctors in action, but this was in the context of infectious diseases. I was still a young teenager and I had the misfortune of being in a, in a refugee camp during a, an armed conflict and there were raging epidemics that were killing people. And then Médecins Sans Frontières, so Doctors Without Borders, flew in to help out. And I could see how they tamed those raging epidemics within about two weeks, and no one was dying anymore. That really impressed me very much. I was about 16 at the time, and that's when I started thinking this is actually a very noble and very impressive profession. But how I ended up in cardiovascular is an entirely different story. And that's really one of like falling in love. Because when I was at medical school, I went through the first couple of semesters thinking this is all kind of interesting, but also very complicated, until we got to cardiovascular physiology. And then somehow I just felt that this is exactly what I wanted to do, <laughs> what I wanted to do uh, medicine. And I've always had a soft spot for cardiovascular and cardiology ever since. And ultimately, when I ended up in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, what was driving me was really trying to make a broader impact than on individual patient level, because it's very impressive to see how medicines work when you're a clinician. Wow. That is a really impressive story. Just to think about going from a refugee camp to where you are now. I, I would love to dive more into that story at some point. But Carolyn, I want to give you the chance to tell us more about your background. I mean, your bio is equally impressive. And I know that you have several different areas of expertise, including not only women's cardiology, but also this whole digital health topic. So can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got into medicine and then also what you're most interested in today? Wow. Thanks so much, Kate, for the opportunity. And indeed, Richard's story is a tough act to follow. Um, mine doesn't begin as dramatically, but I was born in Singapore, a tiny little island city state that you would miss on a map. Honestly, it's just a dot. And the reason I got into medicine is quite predictable, really. The most important person in my life is a doctor. That's my mom. And so I grew up very much working tiger mom, making me do my homework underneath the reception table of her clinic. <laughs> you know, sort of, I grew up asthmatic. And so I think I was like the youngest asthma patient who knew how to dial in my own nebulizer. I was just self-medicating in her <laughs> clinic. And just kind of wow. enjoying life because she's a pediatrician at that. So... That's how I entered medicine. I could think of no other 
better way to touch people's lives at a point that just really matters universally. Just nothing held as much meaning to me. Now, how I got into cardiology was not love at first sight. <laughs> in fact, with Richard, it's the opposite. I was totally infatuated with infectious disease. But as you said, Kate, it's an incident in one's life that completely changes your mindset. And it was my own mom collapsing suddenly in the clinic mm. when she had a cardiac arrhythmia. I had no idea my mom had a long QT syndrome. She had no idea. My mom, the smartest, most capable pediatrician in the universe to me, didn't realize and check her own heart. And really, she was the inspiration for me to really not just go into cardiology, but the Women's Heart Clinic. Because like many other women in Asia, in, in many other areas of, of the world, I'm sure, there was this disbelief that women could have heart disease. So my mom is the, is the mom that took care of everybody in the family. My dad sure had every check of every part of his heart and cholesterol and blood pressure, but not her own. <laughs> You know, at this lack of realizing of her own risk, and she ended up collapsing, my world almost collapsing, and then just realizing this is what I want to do. And the whole breadth of cardiology, from the most geeky things of echo and physiology and physics there, to advanced therapies for heart failure and transplant, um, everything else in between is the whole breadth of cardiology that I am now in love with. Wow. wow. That is an incredible story, too. I'm really excited to get to talk to you both and definitely want to hear what your take is on, you know, the future technologies. But first, let's talk a bit about where we are today. Over the last 30 years, cardiovascular disease has been rising across the globe, and it's now the number one cause of death worldwide. So, Carolyn, how will the prevalence of cardiovascular conditions change as societies continue to age? And then what is the, the cost to society? What's the socioeconomic impact of cardiovascular disease? I think cardiovascular disease in the sense of chronic diseases will certainly rise as we get to age and when we don't age well. And what do I mean by that? You see the acute conditions Typically, infectious disease, those were the things that killed most of us before. Those were the things that filled the hospital, even in Singapore just barely 50 years ago. However, as we started being very good at saving people from acute conditions, not just infectious, but now even acute myocardial infarctions, we're saving them and so on, you start living with the chronic diseases. And chronic diseases can be things like ischemic heart disease, it can be heart failure. It can be diabetes and hypertension that eventually affects the heart. With that, we're going to have not just single hospitalizations, but recurrent hospitalizations and of elderly who will have multiple comorbidities. So things will get more complex and hospitals will have to adjust to this change in the profile of diseases that we see. And heart disease, cardiovascular disease is definitely here to stay. 
So I know that science has learned a great deal about causes and risk factors. And today we know that genetics and lifestyle can impact the risk of cardiovascular disease. So my next question, Carolyn, and something that you kind of just touched on when you were talking about your mom, to what extent can each of us influence our own risk of cardiovascular disease? And particularly, what differences are there between men and women? I think this is the most important message I do want to get out to everyone out there, that heart disease is very much a lifestyle disease. And even if one is born with a genetic predisposition, there is a lot that we can do to manage that risk. So genetic risk does play a part, but as we learn about it, it seems to play only a fraction of the explanation for people who have diseases. And we also see a lot of evidence that even people with a genetic risk, if they do the things or take the medications that are needed to control that risk, do not necessarily have to end up with the heart disease. So the short answer to your question is both matter. What you're born with, the cards you were dealt, but also how you play in life. And so I think it behooves all of us whatever risk we were born with, to really practice, if we can, the healthy cardiovascular lifestyle habits that we all know about. What is that? You know, a good diet, exercise, good sleep, don't smoke, maintain a healthy weight, and so on and so forth. Now, with women and men, just a quick thing that there are some risk factors that unfortunately impact a woman more than a man. Something like smoking, actually increases a woman's risk of heart disease more than smoking does for a, a man. Not to say that men can just smoke. I'm just saying, women, watch out. It's not just something you keep skinny with. It's something that really, really impacts your risk of heart disease. On the other hand, there are protective risk factors that actually work better even for women than men. And here is physical exercise. So we've seen that physical exercise, the protection it affords to a woman is even greater than that it affords to a man. So it's also time we get off our seats and everybody should be physically active. Well, that's good to know. And honestly, good motivation for me. Thank you for that reminder. <laughs> so Richard, speaking of risk factors, in recent years, we've seen news that extreme climates are increasing heart attack risk. If global warming continues, and for now it appears that it will, how do you see this development unfolding and who is particularly at risk? Actually, that is a topic that is luckily being very rapidly recognized. From what we know until now, we know that people who are already vulnerable in terms of their risk factors for cardiovascular disease, already having established cardiovascular disease, are also particularly at high risk. And some of the uh, most vulnerable groups include in particular elderly people and people with disabilities and risk factors for cardiovascular disease, particularly when they're living on their own. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because if you are experiencing a heat wave, some of the things that usually keep you healthy are the first ones to go. Uh, you will probably be less prone to exercising, and it becomes quite paramount keeping well hydrated, which is something that can be very challenging if you already have, for example, you know, reduced mobility beforehand, if you live on your own and there's no one to actually keep an eye on you. 
So we are likely to see, perhaps not necessarily due to the heat waves, an increase in cardiovascular disease, but an increase in the complications and acute events associated with cardiovascular disease. Now, there is a number of other things that are associated with climate change, like increasing pollution, poor air quality. We keep hearing about wildfires that can lead to unprecedented levels of toxic particles in the air, and they can travel miles and miles and miles from one country or the place where it's happening to several countries around the, uh, there. And this has been also been demonstrated to really increase the number of acute events like heart attacks and strokes associated with these catastrophic events. But I have also seen, heard people ask me or ask themselves, you know, well, We've always had regions that have very hot climates. How have they coped until now? And why should it matter for us if we're living in a temperate climate like in Europe uh, or wherever it is that the temperatures are rising? Well, and I say, well, remember, this is happening at very rapid pace. So there is little time for physiological adaptation or even if you're going to be really extreme, genetic adaptation for people to really acclimate to the new climatic conditions, that's one thing. But also, let's not forget that these already hot regions are also facing the same challenge. So it is, if you're living in the Sahara and you've been used to your 40 degree temperatures um, at midday, and you're going to face 45 in a few years' time, well, that is a challenge. (laughs) There is also an adaptation going on for these regions. So just to sum up, I really think it's so important that we do everything that we can to keep the climate change in check, but I also think it's being recognized that it's important to have strategies to keep people safe while we're still trying to find a longer-term solution. And one thing that I have heard, for example, uh, in France, they've already established a registry of people who are vulnerable uh, during heat waves so they can be contacted, they can have a kind of surveillance through the social system and the healthcare system to keep them safe. And this is something that Germany, for example, is still trying to figure out how to approach. So I'm expecting that a number of pilots and examples will emerge that other people might want to uh, to emulate. And then hopefully that will manage to keep all of us safe. That is really interesting. And I'm thinking probably something not a lot of people consider when they hear about climate change. Let's start talking a little bit more about the treatments, the, you know, the science and innovation around cardiology right now, cardiovascular disease, things that people might be familiar with, like anticoagulants, meaning drugs that can prevent and treat blood clots. So, Richard, I know that these are a staple in modern prevention and treatment of certain cardiovascular diseases. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the future of anticoagulation looks like? Before I talk about what the future might look like, which I think is very exciting, I would like to come back to something that I hear quite a bit from like relatives, because actually anticoagulants is not such a straightforward concept to a non-medic person. We call them blood thinners. That's a layman's term. And I have had more than once people ask, you know, why thin the blood? You know, (laughs) what sense does that make? And to understand that, it's worth basically remembering why we have clots, why nature invented clots in the first place, which is to keep you safe from bleeding to death when you were running away from whatever 
that tiger or that lion uh, when we're still hunter-gatherers, presumably, uh, if you cut yourself or if you lost a finger or a limb or if you had a serious injury, obviously everyone understands that you need to form a clot that then seals the wound to stop you bleeding to death. So clots are actually our friends under normal circumstances. However, they can turn into your enemy if they start doing what they're not supposed to do, for example, by clogging up some vessels and then stopping the blood from flowing to some vital organs. This is what usually happens when you cut off the blood supply to parts of your heart and you get a heart attack or to the brain and you get a stroke. So this is what we worry about and this is what we try to prevent. And for a very long time, there was nothing humanity could really do about it. And then in the 1920s, they discovered vitamin K and then realized that vitamin K is actually a very good coagulant. It helps you form your clots. And then vitamin K antagonists, so drugs that basically reverse that action or block that action, were invented in the 40s. And they really did revolutionize a lot of what we do in medicine. However, they had limitations. Uh, everyone needs a different dosing. So it's a lot of very refined fiddling to get you to the right dose. And you need a lot of blood tests to keep you in the right range. So it was very good, but also very complicated. So then in the early 2000s, a big revolution came about because then New drugs were discovered, they're called direct oral anticoagulants. And these do the same job as the vitamin K antagonists, so they can thin your blood enough to stop unwanted clots forming. But they do not have all these other issues of really having to keep you in the right range. Nonetheless, some patients still have some bleeding as side effect on these drugs. So what is now very exciting is that it looks like we may have a new class of drug that are also direct oral anticoagulants. And this is something many patient groups that are not able to take these other drugs have been waiting for. People with chronic kidney disease or people who continue to have bleeding despite being on the right dose of a direct anticoagulant. And one of the class that is being looked at now is so-called factor 11 antagonists. And we are really looking forward to seeing more and more data. Now, the podcast is headline of the futures. You know, this probably would be a really exciting headline to read in about five years from now. Wow, that's very exciting. And I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I wonder if you could briefly tell us, like, how long does it take from start to finish to bring a new drug like that to the market? On average, it will take you about 10 years, 10 to 12 years from the moment you think you really have found the one drug, the one molecule that could become a drug. But in reality, if you count all the time that it takes us to come up with the idea, some brilliant scientists to come up with an idea and test it in the lab, and it, it, it's much longer than that. Um, so we're talking about probably 20, 25 years of hard work by many, many people. But Carolyn, maybe you have a perspective on this as well? No, I'm just, I'm just shaking my head in wonder because even in my humble, relatively short career, I've seen some drugs go from simply preclinical uh, to clinical. And even the implementation into guidelines takes another few years. So it's really, really important to recognize how much work and labor goes into 
every medication that becomes available that can improve patients' lives. Absolutely. I think just generally people outside the industry don't understand that. And and that makes sense. But I mean, you really do have to consider all the work before you can even get to a point where that drug can start to help people. And I want to talk about more therapies. Some of the terminology that I'm hearing about now are cell and gene therapy. Um, so people who have suffered a heart attack or have a history of cardiovascular disease often experience long-term implications that result in poor quality of life. And I wonder, um, Richard, can you tell us a little bit about cell therapy and how that could help restore the heart's function after a heart attack? That's another very exciting area. I've been following it with great interest. And to understand why it's so exciting, and I'm pretty sure Carolyn will have a lot to say about this, particularly from the perspective of a doctor who spends a lot of time looking at people's hearts beating life with echocardiography. This is back to why I fell in love with, with, with the heart in my, in my second year of med school. It's the one organ that cannot really afford a break, not one break. You start beating where in the womb, and when it stops beating, it's basically the end of your life. And it's a muscle. It's an independent muscle that is basically does not depend on you, you willing it to beat. And it's a pump that is working under very well-attuned physical conditions, you know, the pressures and the flows between the chambers and into the vessels, everything has to always be in sync and in the right range. And you add to that that it's all driven by electrical currents that have to flow in the right direction through the right muscles in a coordinated manner. That gives you a sense of what a wonderful machine that is and how exact it has to be. And 24-7, 365 days a year until you drop dead. So when you have a heart attack, which I think is a nice term because it really carries the seriousness of that condition, myocardial infarction is what it's called in, in medical terms. But what it does not really convey that well is actually what happens. You, a heart attack basically takes out a chunk of that well-attuned machine out of function. So you have dead tissue where you usually, previously you had viable tissue and that dead tissue can no longer do the work, the coordinated contraction, the conduction of the electricity. So you end up running on a broken machine, etc., on a broken engine. And that leads to all the symptoms that we know. You can no longer exercise as well. You're out of breath, etc., etc., and ultimately leads to heart failure. So it has a very bad impact on your quality of life. Now, just imagine if you could go back and just, you know, replace exactly that patch that isn't working anymore with a new patch, with fresh, brand new heart tissue that is able to do exactly what the dead tissue was doing before. Perfect. You would expect that these patients would get out of bed and, you know, climb up the stairs and go running with their grandchildren and everything is great. And it looks like we're about to get there because two of the key challenges for cell therapy to replace new tissue have now recently been you know, successfully addressed, at least from a scientific perspective. One was sourcing of the right type of cells because you need stem cells. And the only way to get these in the past was to gather to the bone marrow 
or to umbilical cord or to embryos, which is very difficult and has a lot of ethical issues. And the other thing was getting a stem cell to differentiate into the cell, the type of tissue cell that you want to have. Now we've got the so-called inducible pluripotential stem cells, which is basically the latest and greatest in cell therapy. And these are cells that you can generate from grown tissues. So it could be a, from the skin or from any easily accessible adult tissue. And you can make stem cells out of it that you can also differentiate into heart muscle or any other type of cell that you want, and then use that to patch up the organ that is damaged. Isn't that exciting? And there are already things happening in preclinical studies, and I'm willing to bet that probably in about 15 years' time, we might be seeing the first application, real applications in cardiology. Wow, that is so cool. And exciting for me, because maybe that's about the age that my husband and I will be if we have to (laughs) start thinking about heart issues like that. But yeah, I'm kind of like picturing simple terms, like if you have a wood floor and you have like a little flood damage in just one small part and you can replace those floorboards, like just being able to repair and get back to brand new. Carolyn, what would you like to add about cell therapy? Wow. So what Richard already described, you got it spot on and nothing to add there. But what I would love to add is kind of going from his analogy of imperfect description of a heart attack to also describe what heart failure is, because that's something that's very, very uh, not well understood. Sometimes when I tell a patient that they've got this diagnosis of heart failure, they look very blank. And If you were to say, though, to that same patient, I'm sorry, you've got kidney failure, most people seem to understand that, that that's a serious chronic condition. It's going to require lots of therapy because the kidney is not doing what it's supposed to do, and we need to replace its function or help it. But it's the same concept with heart failure. And so heart failure means that the organ itself has failed to fulfill what it's supposed to be doing. It doesn't mean heart arrest or cardiac arrest. It doesn't mean the whole heart has stopped. And it's also different from the heart attack, what Richard was speaking about, where a little, a part of the heart gets spoiled, right? It's talking about that the heart as a pump is not keeping the circulation around the body anymore. And if I could provide an analogy, it's like, let's say you've got a swimming pool. And the thing that's keeping it from not overflowing all the time is first, there's a pump, right? And it's very easy to understand that if that pump fails, it's not pumping anymore, stuff's going to go wrong, very, very wrong. But the cool thing in cardiology is it's not just when the pump fails to move the blood forward, but if the suction of that pump is stuck the pool is still going to overflow. And so it's actually taken us two decades to actually realize that heart failure is not just when the heart is weak, but also when it is not relaxing enough to suck well. So it could be pumping well, but it's not suctioning well. And as a result, as I said, of the chronic diseases that were going really, really saving people from the heart attacks and so on, 
Heart failure as a condition is actually the top cause of hospitalization among the elderly in many parts of the world. It's such a serious condition with a um, outcome and, and a survival that's actually the same, if not worse, than some cancers. And there are lots of breakthroughs coming in, even for the other type of heart failure where the pump is still functioning, but the suction's not going so well. So we're in really, really exciting times. And I think cell therapy, gene therapy, maybe some of these things that will play a part in the future. So that's, for one, like the best analogy I've ever heard that helps me understand heart failure. So thank you. And talk a little bit about gene therapy. Like what would gene therapy do to help treat that? So first, I want to say this with cautious optimism because I've been stuck, because we've been there, because we tried several approaches in heart failure, where what we've done is we try to put some genes in to try to make the heart produce more little vessels and kind of nurse itself better and nurse itself stronger. And to cut a long story short, we haven't really been successful making sure that things actually reach the heart. You know, do we have the right target? Do we have the right product? And so on. However, I do really take encouragement from the strides in gene therapy that we see happening in many other areas in medicine, and no doubt will happen in cardiology. I mean, look at oncology with the treatments now for melanoma, something we thought, I mean, Richard, remember, I mean, when we were med students, that was like fatal. Now you can cure it with immunotherapy. It's just phenomenal. Who would have thought, right, that in cardiology, everyone was saying, oh, it's because it's genetically what we call a dirty disease. It's not like a single gene. And so we will never be able to get further is what we used to think. Now we actually have products of RNA th therapeutics in the market now for things like amyloidosis. Who knew we could pinpoint one gene, one receptor, something we could target for silencing RNA, for example, and really even cure a disease or help a disease like cardiac amyloidosis, where there's a folding problem of the protein and it lays down in the heart. So it's truly quite incredible. And I think we're just at the beginning. That's a very good point and definitely something to be optimistic about. Um, and Carolyn, I want to pivot to another topic, especially knowing that you are the co-founder of a startup um, that has to do with AI. Can you tell us more about how digital health technologies can improve the prevention, diagnosis, and care of cardiovascular disease? Yeah, thanks, Kate. I'm, of course, so excited about digital health technologies, although I also want to admit that AI, artificial intelligence, is a term that has been used and abused. There's a lot of hype, but there is a lot of hope, and I hope to convince you of that. Now, digital health technologies that we've all experienced, I'm sure, will happen just in the COVID pandemic. Look how much it helped so that we could do simple things like teleconsultations with our patients, that we could do telemonitoring and allow home care of many patients. All that was assisted by digital technology. So it's as simple as things like that, that we know have improved patients' lives. Now, for example, a lot of my patients don't have to come to hospital 
to collect medications. It's through digital connections that things can be sent to them and so on. Um, but let's, let's go further, shall we, and, and go into some moonshot type of dream. And here, I would like to say that AI really has potential to automate the very, very manual tasks that we doctors do and have been doing it the same way for maybe hundreds of years, that's so manual that it's, of course, going to be error-prone and takes up a lot of time. And one such thing, of course, is echocardiography. That's something that I know very well because I trained for very long to be able to read an echo. And what does read an echo mean? It means spend hours in a dark room just looking through loops of fuzzy images moving just to stop it at one point and then to trace it like a five-year-old, and then to measure, and then try to remember what's normal for that age and, and sex and so on, and then to report whether that's normal or not. Now, we've done it the same way for years, but once you realize that it's this manual, repetitive thing of looking through images, stop, measure, you know that we can automate it. And that's what we did in, in, in Us2 AI. But just to use it as a concept that the idea is to take away this manual component to free the doctor for more time to focus on the complex cases and to spend time with the patient. Because none of us like doing the manual stuff, but we do need our brains to interpret, therefore, after we've got the echo result, what's the best thing to do for the patient in the totality of their socioeconomic status, and every other disease that they may have. So that, I think, is the true potential of AI. Not the self-driving car with no driver in it, but the self-driving car that makes the driver safer because some of the things that are prone for manual error is taken over by AI. That makes so much sense. So again, I'm just thinking of things that people might be familiar with in their own lives, like I have a Mac and iPhoto library. And if you go into your iPhoto library and like name people for a while, your computer will start to like find all of the pictures of that person. Like it always amazes me that it can find pictures of them like as a baby, even though they don't look anything to me like they do now. So you're saying basically you can teach computers to read these echoes yeah, that's such a great analogy, Kate, because that's exactly it. It's pattern recognition. It's sort of saying, this is normal, this is not. But again, letting you decide at the end of the day, there's a doctor that still has to sign off, but at least that whole categorizing and that manual sorting has already saved you hours. And you just kind of go, yep, that's right. Okay, yep, that's right. So you're perfectly in control. But it's a lot safer and less error. So actually patients benefit, doctors benefit, everyone does. That's very, very cool. I can't wait to see how that unfolds. Well, one more question on this topic. Richard, I wanted to go back to what we were talking about earlier as we discussed the socioeconomic impact of cardiovascular disease. How do you think all of this innovation is going to help reduce the socioeconomic burden of these conditions in the long term? You know, if you just think about what Carolyn just nicely described, when we start taking out tedious, repetitive, time-consuming labor out of doctors' routine work, this will 
hopefully really increase their ability to see more patients. And it's the democratization of a lot of these types of highly specialized investigations that allow you to actually decide what is wrong with the patient and that currently not really reaching every patient. And the poorer the resource setting is, the more difficult it is to get to an appropriate and well-informed diagnosis to then be able to treat the patient appropriately. And this always or very often hinges on the fact that it's very difficult to get highly trained doctors that have to do a lot of work, which is a limitation in its own right, to those kind of settings. Now, if we really have automation for a, a very large chunk of the diagnostic work, I think that will massively improve access to healthcare. For me, that's one of the very, very obvious things that we really have to strive for. Another aspect, looking at it from the vantage point of my work, you know, drug development is an extremely onerous and expensive enterprise. And part of the reason is, again, that it really depends on the labor of highly trained physicians and healthcare professionals who, of course, also have the double duty of looking after their patients. Uh, so they're not just sitting around waiting for me to come to them and say, hey, I've got a nice clinical trial. Do you want help me? They're always very busy already looking after their patients. And if we can automate and speed up and simplify a lot of these processes, everyone benefits because it will make the trials much faster. We will be able to get to the right answers much earlier. We will get the therapies to market much earlier and at a cheaper or a lower price tag. And so ultimately, again, it will end up benefiting society. So just two um, of the ways that I think this will have uh, a big impact. But Caroline, I'm, I'm looking forward to hear your examples because I'm sure you, you have some very concrete yeah, I think, Richard, you can see me beaming away and super excited because I did think of an example as you were talking. It's the ECG or yeah. electrocardiogram. I'm going to date myself, but you better <laughs> agree with me, Richard, that when I was training, an electrocardiogram to look at the electrical activity of the heart was something you had to go to a cardiologist to do. And what, what we did is we would print them out strip by strip it was the medical students who would cut up the strips, paste them, and then take out our metal calipers and be measuring the little squiggles to decide if they're normal or not. But what do you do now if you want to know your electrical rhythm of the heart? You look at your watch. If you've got one of those things, any smart watch that's got the heart, it's AI. It's AI. So the first thing was, democratizing it, removing it from the sole territory of the cardiologist was simply programming AI to read the electrical rhythms so that you can produce a report in words, normal or not, on the top of, of, of that report. And with that, general practitioners could start doing the ECG. You didn't have to go to a cardiologist. And then it just got better and better and better, the AI at reading all these squiggles so that now we've got it on a watch. You see, it's so this this is the power, I think, of AI. And if we can do that for cardiac imaging and for other things, we should put heart health into the hands of everyone. It should not be locked up in the ivory towers of cardiologists, although we would love to offer our expertise to manage it. But for detection and so on, tools need to be available to everybody. I think what I enjoy about talking to experts like yourselves 
the most is the closer you are to the topic, the more excited you are about all the little things that I think the rest of us just kind of take for granted. This is really exciting stuff. And I love how much you appreciate it and help us appreciate that. I want to get to that part in the podcast where we really take that moonshot look, as you said, Carolyn, into the future. Let's do a quick take from each of you. What's one other scientific breakthrough that you think could truly transform cardiovascular health care by 2050? Carolyn, let's start with you. Oh, I would still have to go back to AI, but because there is so many components of it, there is that component of using it to automate some of the things that we do. But there is also a component of using it to really help process the immense data that we have to see things that the human intelligence cannot quite see because of our limited ability to see the different patterns. I do believe in that. I know that we've heard of big data possibilities. We've seen some breakthroughs in oncology. And I really think that having more and more data with the tools, we can get more insight into diseases um, in the future. Excellent. Richard, how about you? Uh, very much agree with that. And that was also the next thought on my mind. There's maybe one step further from that, which is that Ultimately, we want to really go to personalized medicine. Every single one of us is different. We have a different genetic makeup. We have different uh, epigenetics, meaning basically how our gene interacts with the environment we have lived in. And that means that actually no single treatment can ever be exactly the same and have exactly the same effects for two different people. Now, that's taking it to the extreme. But what we do know now already is that when we talk about conditions like heart failure that we've been talking about, like chronic kidney disease, we look at these patients and we say they've all got the same condition. But deep down, we know what is driving the condition to behave the way it's behaving in, in one particular patient may be different from another particular patient. There's usually a lot of different biological mechanisms underlying it. And using new methods to an analyze big data sets will hopefully allow us to really do what Carolyn just described, understand the disease better, but then also go one step further and identify the right treatment for each individual patient. And I really hope that we will have a time where like your health ID card will basically automatically include your cardiovascular risk profile and all the appropriate treatment options are, are really tailored to you. That would be great. Okay. We should all keep our eyes on that topic. So we've just spent some time talking about, I mean, this has just been a fascinating conversation about a topic that I think probably personally affects almost everyone on the planet. And I can't thank you both enough for sharing your insights, but we can't leave the podcast without asking about your headline. This is Headlines of the Future. And so, um, Richard, maybe you can start and, and just give us your, your headline. What scientific breakthrough would you like to see in a headline about cardiovascular health care by 2050? I would love to be able to see a headline that says something like the WHO, the World Health Organization, officially classifies stroke and heart attack as ultra-rare diseases. 
so that we've really bitten them back that they become so rare. No one is seeing this anymore. That would be very, very exciting. Yes, it would be amazing. And Carolyn, what's your headline? What would you like to see? My headline is really quite different, but super close to my heart. Read this. International cardiovascular guidelines take sex differences into account. That's what I want. I am sick and tired of reporting so many differences between men and women, including cutoffs of what's normal or not for most basic things of heart size, heart function. And yet, guidelines are written with a sex-neutral, male-dominated, single cutoff. And the problem is, more often than not, it becomes the woman who gets deprived of a proper therapy because the male cutoff is used. I would love to see guidelines finally just acknowledge women can have cardiovascular disease too. And for any therapies, we do need specific, sex-specific guidelines. I just have to thank you both so much, Carolyn and Richard. Really, really great discussion today. And thank you to our audience for listening to Headlines of the Future. I hope you found this conversation interesting as much as I did, and maybe even got you excited about the future of cardiovascular healthcare. If you want to learn more about science and the innovations that can help address some of our biggest global challenges, visit bear.com, listen to our next episode, and subscribe. If you want, share the podcast with others or leave us a rating and review. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.